So we welcome you here today. Uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series. We're going through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, right now we're in the book of Amos, uh, and we're going to be in chapters 3 and 4 today. And uh, the last two chapters of Amos, which we went through the last two weeks, uh, we looked at the eight prophecies of judgment that are pronounced upon the nations. And so the Lord brings forth his, his words of judgment upon all these nations. There's, uh, there's really the six uh, uh, nations of, of pagan worshipers or non-believers, non-people of God. And in the last two, he brings forth his judgment upon the nation of Judah and lastly, the nation of Israel. And as he lists his indictments on the nation of Israel, we come to recognize uh, the major reason for their downfall, uh, and that was that they forgot the Lord. Uh, it's pretty simple when you put it that way, but it's what happened. They forgot the Lord, and so they forgot his statutes, they forgot his word, they forgot his law, everything that he had done for them, and they fell into a life of sin, began following after false gods, uh, seeking to... Uh, um, achieve the desires of the flesh rather than live for the Lord. Uh, and so no longer was the law of the Lord written on their hearts. They did not meditate on it day and night. Uh, they, didn't, they no longer told the history of all the Lord had done for the people of Israel. And so they forgot the Lord's love. They forgot his faithfulness. And in doing so, like I said, they begin to follow after false gods. Uh, and as believers today, I think we should take note of the folly of Israel and the destruction that it brought upon them. And so when we forget God, we forget everything he is and everything that he has done for us. And Psalm 77 is really a wonderful place to turn to as a reminder of everything that God has done. And it should be really kind of the attitude or prayer that is on our hearts all the time. It says in verses 11 through 15, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders, and you have made known your might among the peoples. With You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And so the first two chapters of Amos, they covered the prophecies of judgment, again, to eight different nations. Now the next three chapters we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, uh, chapters 3 through 6, are the recorded sermons of Amos, which we're going to begin here today. So I'll give you guys, if you haven't already turned, a moment to turn to Amos chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do offer some in the church. Um, and if you feel like following along, you can also follow along uh, on the screen. But I really encourage you, if you have the opportunity to open your word, I, I, I recommend that greatly. Um, Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Before we begin, I just want to open up in prayer one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, just ask that you would uh, just direct the message today, that your thoughts and your words would uh, speak forth through me, and that your message would be revealed to us today, that we may be able to apply it to our hearts and our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 1, chapter 3. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the prophet begins his message uh, by reminding the nation of their relationship to God and the deliverance that they received from God. Uh, so the Lord has promised Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis that his descendants would be blessed and that they, that they would be more than he could even number. 
And so they were to be a chosen people. And the nation of Israel is to be a light uh, to the other surrounding nations of the world. And, and so the, their hope or the, the goal, the vision and place and then plan that God had in mind for the nation of Israel is that these surrounding nations would look at how God had treated him, uh, treated the people of Israel, and that they would also desire to know God the way that Israel knew God. So Israel had a very unique, privileged opportunity that they were given. Of course, if you're familiar with the nation of Israel, they ended up in bondage to Egypt, or in Egypt. And while they were there, they cried out for a deliverer, and the Lord delivered them. And, what, and this is what Amos is reminding the people of in the very first verse, through the words of the Lord, that they were brought out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding the people, look at what I've done for you. I've, I've saved you from the hands of the Egyptians. And again, if you recall from last week, they were in need of reminding because they had forgotten God and the things that he had done for them. And so Amos reminds the nation that God is the one who delivered them from bondage. And I believe that we ourselves are in a very similar position this morning. We have a similar relationship with the Lord. If we've placed our faith in him, we are in fact his people. And he has adopted us and he has brought us into his family. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, again, we have a relationship with God. And a part of that relationship is having an understanding that he brought us out of bondage to this world, brought us out of sin, brought us out of darkness and into himself. And knowing this, now we respond in relationship and in the fact that we have been delivered and now want to live for the Lord. But sadly, this was not the case for Israel. And as we're going to see this morning, Amos will ask a series of rhetorical questions to the nation of Israel, which we're going to look at right here. Seven rhetorical questions as we continue. In verse 3, do, we, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall on a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? So with a series of questions, what Amos is doing is he shows the imminent disaster that is about to fall on Israel. And he points, out, uh, points this all out in, in the world of nature. He uses these uh, metaphors, so to speak, uh, and, and certain sequences of events that can lead to predictable outcomes. Right? If, a lo- if a lion roars, it's taking its prey, is what he's saying, or it's about to take its prey. And what Amos is doing is simply telling Israel that the Lord God has announced judgment, and that unless they take immediate action and turn from their sin, the outcome is certain disaster. And in verse 6, God is reminding the people that the coming disaster is not by chance or to be attested to bad luck. He's saying this is coming from the Lord. It's by the faithful and righteous hand of God. And so the Lord is bringing forth judgment upon an unfaithful nation and they must be awakened from their spiritual slumber. But then we find what the problems were within the nation as we proceed. In verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod and the strongholds of the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, for those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So here the Lord declares some of the, the problems within the nation of Israel. First of all, he says, Do you see the tumult within her midst, or the tumults? 
Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's like a rowdy group of confused people. Uh, when you have a tumultuous kid, they're kind of rowdy and out of control. <laughs> uh, and so there's these confused and rowdy uh, people within the uh, nation of Israel. But along with that confusion, there's oppression among the people, right? And, and it says that they do not do what is right, right? It says they don't do what is right. And why is that? Because they don't know how. They've forgotten what to do or how to do what is right because they've forgotten the Lord and his statutes. This all kind of uh, ties into last week. So instead of doing what is right, they've gone in the exact opposite direction, similar to, to Jonah and his... <laughs> command to go to Nineveh. He goes in the exact opposite direction. Uh, they've indulged in violence, it says, and in robbery. And when you live a life apart from God, or even if you've fallen away from God in your own life for a long time, you may not even notice that you are, in fact, living in sin. When you dwell in the flesh for so long, like Israel, you may forget how to do what is right, or be able to assess what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. But what we have to understand is that if you're doing, what you're doing goes against God's word. If it goes against his law and is contradictory to what he says, then in fact it's a sin. And so Amos kindly reminds the nation of Israel where they have strayed with great tumults, oppression, and violence. And so verse 11, what results will follow, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. So in this land with confusion and uprising and uh, oppression and violence, and now it tells us that there's an adversary, and it has three things, right? It says the adversary surrounds the land, wears down their defenses, and plunders their strongholds. And this is something I want to just talk about for a moment, because it's the same tactic you could, see, you could apply to our adversary, the devil, that he uses on us, right? He, use, he looks to surround us with lies, with worldly passions and desires, pride. And by doing so, he wears down our defenses. And when he does that, he seeks to plunder our hearts, to plunder our minds. And perhaps some of you are thinking, that's me, I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty worn down this morning. Um, now God, I think, has a pretty funny and uh, incredible way <laughs> of speaking uh, to us exactly what we need to hear. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, at the end of the sermon, I shared some honesty uh, from my heart about where I've been uh, lately, uh, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually speaking. Uh, and I've been worn down. You know, I've, been, I've just been worn down. I've been tired. And, uh, and so it's funny that as I continued my studies this week, that in verse 11 here, we see the tactics of the adversary is one who wears down defenses. And in the wearing down, in my own personal life, I had felt my joy and my peace had been plundered, as it were. And so the enemy uses several tactics to surround us, as it's worded here, right? And he may tempt us with, with what we call pleasure or pain. And we saw both of those in the book of Job, if you're unfamiliar. Job has everything, right? He has everything in his life that he could ever want. He has ten wonderful kids. He has a lot of land, a uh, wonderful wife. His relationship's on fire with the Lord. But all those pleasures could not pull him from the Lord. And so the enemy uses a different tactic and applies pain to his life. And as you know the story, he loses all his children. He loses his land. He gets very ill himself. Uh, it looks like his whole world is crumbling apart, but he remains faithful nonetheless. But that's the way the enemy works. For some, he may surround us with pleasures of the world, the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the heart. For others, it may be an overwhelming attack built up on deceit and lies whispered into your heart and your mind, seeking to wear down your defenses that way. 
But what the adversary is seeking to do ultimately is to plunder our hearts, to plunder our minds, our relationships, our marriages, um, our, our unity as a collective body of believers, and our relationship with God. He wants nothing more than to pull us away from our Heavenly Father. And so the enemy first seeks to wear down defenses with attack after attack after attack. And then the adversary, you have to understand, guys, he takes no days off, right? You know, it's Sunday. I'm going to take a day off from you guys and come back to you on Monday. No, the enemy doesn't do that. Every day we have to understand is a spiritual battle. But there's also some wonderful news for us this morning is that also our Savior takes no days off either. So he's going to fight for you and he will protect you. Psalm 12 verse 5 says, Because the poor are plundered, because the, greedy, the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So we have a protector in Jesus. And I hope you find encouragement in that today. If you are worn down, if you are tired and weary, if you feel like your defenses have been taken a hit, just run to the Lord and he will place us in the safety for which we long. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then who can forget the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 28? He said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And this is exactly why the enemy seeks to pull us away from the Lord because that's where we find our refuge, that's where we find our trust, and that's where we find our uh, salvation and our protection. So if we forget the Lord, as we talked about last week, we forget his works. Guys, we forget his attributes, his love, his mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness. But if we can remember the Lord and that he is fighting for us, that he is, in fact, protecting us, we can be much better equipped and prepared to face the adversary. But in the book of Amos, not only was the adversary surrounding the land, wearing down defenses and plundering, but in verse 12, it tells us that thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the cor corner of a couch and part of a bed. It's kind of an odd verse, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, what does that even mean? He's explaining pieces of an animal of some sort in, a, in the mouth of a lion and parts of a couch and a bed. It kind of doesn't seem to make sense, but what he's saying is, in other words, that the nation of Israel is going to be torn apart. And Amos uses the imagery of a shepherd attempting to rescue a sheep from the mouth of a lion, but only able to remove pieces of it from its mouth. You know, it says, you know, part of an ear, um, you know, or two legs. In fact, what happens is we're going to see, as you'd see with the nation of Israel, is that only a remnant of the nation would remain after they uh, had been taken into captivity, hence the small pieces of the animal salvaged. Um, and so we see in Amos now in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Again, this is another interesting portion of Scripture that we're going to have to uh, uh, take this cultural gap, so to speak, and kind of bridge it so we have an understanding of what is going on here in the words of uh, Amos. In the Old Testament, when they built the altar, there were four horns that were built into the corners of the altar. And there were times, if you were in trouble or you wanted safety, uh, that they would run to the altar and grab hold of the horns uh, for safety. This was supposed to be a place of protection. Uh, there's a story in the Old Testament that when Solomon came to the throne, there was a man uh, who ran into the temple and took the horns of the altar. There was a, 
Solomon had sent a request to have this man executed for his transgressions. And so a soldier was chasing him, trying to capture him and, and execute him. But the man ran into the temple, grabbed hold of the horns. And so the soldier came back to report to Solomon and said, Hey, he, he's at the altar. He's holding onto the horns. Like... We, I can't, we can't kill him. And Solomon says, you do it anyway because he has sinned. He has transgressed against the nation of Israel. And so he ends up um, killing him at the altar. Why did he do that? Again, because of his transgressions. But here it says that these very horns of the altar are cut off. So in other words, this is a very clear indication that there is no place for safety for the people of Israel. There's no place to run. And why is that? It's because of their transgression as well. Because of the sin that they were involved with, because of their idolatry, they had turned their back on the Lord. In essence, they had been cut off from His protection. And so the Lord says in verse 15, because of their transgressions, He says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So this verse is a picturesque of, of Israel's social injustice that was taking place at the time. Uh, it represented by the sin of amassing property that's very similar to the statement made in Isaiah chapter 5 where he says, What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. But I have heard the Lord of heaven's armies swear in solemn oath, many houses will stand deserted, even beautiful mansions will be empty. Ten acres of vineyard will not produce even six gallons of wine. Ten baskets of seed will yield only a basket of grain. As you read this, you're probably wondering what's, what's the big deal? What's wrong with amassing property or accumulating wealth? Is that, is that a sin? And, and by no means, that in, that in and of itself is not a sin. That's not what Amos is saying. What he's saying, as we're going to see in chapter 4, is that these people had accumulated wealth while at the same time oppressing the poor. Right? They had this, vi- uh, this viable opportunity to help those in need, but instead of doing so, they oppressed those in need. And in fact, they probably worsened the situation by maybe even putting other people in greater need by uh, obtaining all this wealth and all this land. And so they worsened the situation by their actions and uh, or possibly some of their inaction to help the needy and oppressed. So it's a stern reminder for us that the things of this world, guys, they ultimately do not matter, right? The things that we uh, accumulate, all the wealth that we obtain, all the things that we have, they do not matter in the grand scheme of things. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth and rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now again, I, I'm going to be clear, this is not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be or can't be wealthy. You know, if God has blessed you in that way, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but the question for us to ponder, reflect this morning, is what is our ultimate desire for accumulating wealth and possessions? What is our heart behind the obtaining of wealth? Do we hold on to such things as a means of validation in this world? Is it purely for enjoyment, or do we open our hearts to others less fortunate? And so again, it's not, it's not the money is the root of all evil, right? It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so we have to understand what is our heart and our desire behind the accumulation of wealth. Now chapter 4, the prophet, he gets a little more personal here. He says in verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, as you may guess, he is not actually talking to cows. (laughs) 
Uh, chapter 4, he begins with calling out the leading women of Samaria. And he essentially, he refers to them as fat cows. I'm not condoning his actions or his words here by any means. I don't recommend you ever call anybody that. Um, but nonetheless, that is what he says. We have to remember too, Amos is a, uh, he's a fig picker and a sheep breeder. So he's not the most eloquent of people sometimes. And perhaps uh, this was a name that he was used to... <laughs> calling people he was upset with, uh, the cows of Bashan. Um, but Bashan was a territory in the east uh, that was east of the Sea of Galilee, and it was prime grazing land. Uh, Bashan, um, the, the, the cattle there was known to be very superb, very well off, very meaty, <laughs> as it were. Um, but my guess as to why he would use this phrase, uh, I think that's probably twofold. My guess was to gain the attention of the people there. Uh, something like that would probably make you perk your head up. You're like, what? What did you just call us? You know, <laughs> called us a cow? Um, but perhaps another association to the cows of Bashan was that these women were women of wealth. Right? Just as the cows of Bashan were certainly well off, uh, they were not lacking for any food. They, they didn't have any real needs. Uh, you could act, in fact be said that these cows uh, in the pastures of Bashan were um, provided an overabundance of nourishment. And so these women may have been the same, having an overabundance of wealth, right? far more than what they ever needed. And how again did they utilize it? And it says that the sin of the elite women that God is calling out is what? It's oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, and, and he also labels drunkenness. Now with that said, I don't believe that it was just the women who were at fault here, uh, but it does imply that the women were not innocent in the judgment of the nation of Israel. Men and women both had turned from the law of the Lord and were dwelling in sin. And so notice what happens here in verse 2. It says that the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. And so this future judgment that comes, it comes at the hands of a nation known as Assyria. The Assyrians, when they would come in and they would take people into captivity, they did it very, very brutally. Uh, it's been recorded that oftentimes if people knew uh, that the Assyrians were coming in and they have already kind of overwhelmed their army uh, and knew that they were going to be taken captivity, if they could, many of them would take their own lives instead of being under the oppression of the Assyrians. They were very brutal people. And one of the things that they would do, as you see here in verse 2, is that, uh, that they would strip people down and they would put fish hooks in their mouths. Um, there's these big old hooks and oftentimes it would actually go under your uh, tongue and th out through under your chin. And it would grab hold there and they would pull you behind horses or chariots uh, until you died. It was an awful, awful brutal thing. So you can see why there was often a lot of fear associated with these people. And this is all because the, uh, the Israelites were... Um, uh, were terrible with oppression to the poor and the needy, and their judgment was thus the destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. Now, if I was them in that situation, and I would, you know, and I imagine most of us, if we if we heard these words as Israelites back then, we'd probably say, "Okay, we need to do something, right? We need to turn back to God right now and get right with the Lord." I don't, I'm not, I'm not going out this way. Uh, but they didn't. <laughs> uh, time and time again, and prophet after prophet, God would send, and they would continue. Uh, to the words would continue to fall on deaf ears. They didn't listen, and so they, in fact, they did happen to be taken into captivity. 
But then it's almost as if Amos in the next part is, uh, he says it very sarcastically almost. He says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for you loved, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So at first it kind of sounds like, okay, he's telling them to kind of worship, go back, make, make sacrifices. It doesn't sound too bad, but when you understand what he's saying, he's being very sarcastic because the kings of Israel um, did not want to worship where the Lord had commanded them to worship. They set up these other places where they could worship uh, in Gilgal and in Bethel. And when they would go there, they would worship uh, most often golden calves. And uh, these are images that had been fashioned and set up so that they could go and worship there. So essentially what Amos is saying is, go ahead, go worship there. Go worship your golden calf. You know, go to Bethel, go to Gilgal. He says transgress, which is another way of sinning or breaking the law of God. He says, you know, he's essentially saying, you think you're worshiping, guys, but you're actually deep in sin. In Deuteronomy, they were commanded to bring a certain tithe every three years. And so here Amos is saying, go ahead, bring that tithe every three days. It's not going to matter. You're, you're living and dwelling in sin. He says, offer a sacrifice with leaven. And if you're ever familiar with that, it's, it wasn't allowed. That was also a sin. They were not to, allowed to sacrifice anything with leaven. Leaven was considered contaminated and it was not to be associated with any of the sacrifices. Now they kind of had some interesting laws back then. So why was leaven wrong? Well, it was a, it was a type of sin according to the Old Testament. Um, and it's really imagery of sin in our own lives. And I say that because... Leaven is extremely small, but it affects everything, right? It, it permeates everything. Uh, it, has anyone ever made bread here, homemade bread? Right? It doesn't take a whole lot of yeast, right, to make that dough rise. Um, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing uh, how little it needs. But j that's what sin's like, right? You don't need a lot of it, but it can affect your entire life. Galatians 5.9, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Say that five times fast. Um, but it doesn't take a lot of sin to affect your whole life. Well, the enemy may attempt to deceive us by saying that the sin will have little to no consequences. The truth of the matter is that oftentimes our sin affects more than ourselves, right? It affects and permeates our life, but it also affects those around us as well. It can have an effect on multiple lives. But what's perhaps the most sad about this whole thing here in verse 5, it tells us that the people of Israel loved to do so, or so loved to do what it is it's referring to is that they loved their sin. They loved everything about their sin. It's the exact opposite response that Jesus calls us to in his Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in Matthew 5 verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is speaking about mourning of sin, and it's confirmed in 2 Corinthians where it says, Paul states, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But the Israelites, they were so far gone in this point. They'd, they had turned away from the Lord for so long and gone so deep in their sin that it says they loved it. They felt no remorse. They felt no heartbreak for what they were doing. They felt uh, no heartbreak for denying their first love, which is the Lord, for breaking his commands. And once more, I believe that this section of Scripture ought to make us pause and really reflect on our own spiritual lives this morning. You know, where are we this morning? Are we dwelling in sin. Have we been for some time? Maybe so much so that we don't even recognize it until we take time to really contemplate our life. Perhaps we've gotten to the point where we love our sin. 
Now, how do you know if you're at that point? How do you know if you're at the point where you love your sin? And I say that, I mean you love it more than you love the Lord. I think one way that we can recognize this is if we're attempting to make justifications for our actions, for the way we're living. We try to justify it. You know, I know how it looks, right? I know it doesn't look good, but I'm doing it for a good purpose. I have a good reason behind what I'm doing. You know, we can, our intentions, we say, are pure, so to speak. But we attempt to convince ourselves that our sin really isn't sin. That's a dangerous place to be. We try to twist scripture to say, well, maybe that doesn't, you know, maybe that's not really a sin. Scripture doesn't really make it that clear. And if you have to justify it, it's probably not a good place to be. It's just a good rule of thumb. But another way we can recognize if we're at this point is if we find solace in comparing ourselves to others, right? You know, well, at least I'm not like that guy. He's a wreck. <laughs> you know, you look at him, you know, he's, he's a mess. I'm not like that. You know, I'm not that bad. Um... But guys, it does no good to compare ourselves to other people. Um, Because I can tell you this, you can always find someone a little more depraved than you to feel good about yourself, right? You can always find someone who's a little more uh, involved with sin and say, you know, I'm doing all right. But if if we're going to really compare ourselves to anyone, let's compare ourselves to Jesus, right? (laughs) Let's start there. Um, And I think when we do that, we should have the same response as Isaiah did. Uh, when he was in the presence of the Lord. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah was a well-known prophet to the nation of Israel. And if you recall in this time in Scripture, he kind of had himself on a pedestal, as it were. He saw himself as righteous in comparison to the people of Israel. The people of Israel were failing at the Lord's commands, and so he stood before the Lord thinking, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing the Lord's work. He's called me. I am righteous. But then the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah, and he says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And he realizes his depravity in the midst of God. And that's exactly where we would be if we compared ourselves to Jesus rather than one another. But the question for us this morning is, how does our sin make us feel? Right? Are we in love with it? Are we in love with our life if we're dwelling in the flesh? Or does it break our heart? For Israel, they loved it, and that was ultimately their downfall in this situation. Now we're getting close to closing here, um, but I want to take a look at the conclusion of Amos' message here in chapter 4. And we're going to read through this quickly. It says, I gave you, in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now cleanness of teeth uh, signifies that there was no food to eat. He didn't give them toothbrushes and crest. He <laughs> said they had no food to eat so there couldn't be any uh, germs on their teeth because there was nothing to eat. So he's saying essentially he had no food uh, and all these, and as you're going to see, all these different adversities that he lists off that arise in Israel is God's attempt to awaken the nation of Israel from their slumber, to draw them back to the heart of the Lord. He doesn't want to ultimately put forth this judgment of the Assyrians coming in and just, and just taking over the people of Israel. He's looking to draw them back to the heart, his heart before any of this takes place. So as it continues in verses 7 and 8, it says, I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain the other, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. So some of the false gods that Israel worshipped, uh, like Baal, they believed that were gods over the rain and, of, and other elements in nature. And so they'd worship these idols, believing that they would bring forth rain for their crops. 
And really, they forgot that the rain came only from the one true God, which is uh, Yahweh. And so if you remember, uh, when Elijah, he confronted these very prophets of Baal uh, in a different portion of scripture. He confronted Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, he said, it's not going to rain uh, and, unless I speak it, essentially, for three years, and it didn't rain in the nation. And then uh, Elijah meets with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they kind of have this throwdown, this competition of sorts. He says, you pray to your God, uh, which is Baal. He had like 12, I think 12 prophets of Baal. He says, you pray to your God, and if your God brings down fire upon the altar that you guys build, then he's the true God. And I'll pray to my God, which is Yahweh. And uh, if he brings fire on my altar, uh, he's the true and living God. And uh, Elijah, he's a, he's a pretty cocky guy in this extra scripture. kind of like it. just shows his faith in the Lord. And he says, you know what? I'll tell you what, you guys can have a 12-hour head start. Uh, I'm going to douse my uh, altar with a ton of water. I'm going to build a moat around it. I'm just going to submerge this thing in water. Uh, so it'd be very hard to start on its own. And, you know, you guys go ahead and pray. And then when your 12 hours is up, I'll, I'll start my, my prayer to the Lord. And so he kind of does that. I imagine he was sitting back on a lawn chair with some iced tea, uh, watching these prophets. And then he gets up after his 12-hour alarm goes off. He prays. And the story goes, the, the fire from heaven comes down and uh, consumes the altar entirely. And uh, after that, it tells us that Elijah went and prayed seven times. Uh, and you see his faith uh, just further confirmed in the Lord as he prays seven times for the rain to fall. And sure enough, after it hasn't rained for three years, the rain from the Lord comes. And uh, it was just a, a revealing time for the nation of Israel that it was God, in fact, Yahweh, that brought forth the rain. It wasn't these false gods that they were worshiping to. It was the one true God. But the reason there was a drought was that the Lord is trying to get the people's attention once more here in the book of Amos. But instead of turning to God, the people of Israel would wander from city to city seeking to alleviate their thirst. And instead of looking to the, instead of looking to the world for other things and other things for answers as the uh, nation of Israel did here, God desires us to look to him. We have to remember too, guys, when you read this, it looks like, man, this is, this is pretty harsh, but, you know, God is the good shepherd, right? Scripture says that his staff, his rod and his staff, they what? They comfort us. So he uses these implements, these tools, to bring us back in line because he loves us. But Israel, it says, does not return to the Lord. Let's see what happens next in verse 9. It says, I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you do not return to me, declares the Lord. So right here right now, we see the people are without food. They lack water. And so they reap the harvest of what they have and they store it up in their storehouses. But what happens? It says it gets moldy. So they have to throw it out. It becomes bad. And so they go back to the crops to get more. But now the locusts have devoured everything. So now they're truly without food, no water, no crops. And it says they still didn't return to the Lord. So it says in verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I called your young men with the sword, or killed your young men with the sword, and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Thus, or therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what, his, what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. 
So as Amos closes his message, he reminds the people of Israel of the might and the power of the one true and living God. In verse 12, I think should have brought fear among the people, right? As he says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I don't know. That, that sounds very intimidating to me if I was standing in their position. Prepare to meet your God. It's very important to note this morning that God was desiring a full return to him and a full turning away from the things of this world. Uh, there was often times that the Israelites uh, were known to partially turn back to God. When things got bad, they would kind of cry out to him and say, God, you know, leave us of this. And he would return and he would leave them of it. And then as soon as their issues and their, and their plagues or whatever was taking place uh, dissipated, they would go back to however they were living in the world, worshiping other gods. And so just this continual process of God trying to bring them back and they would get so far and then they would fall back once more. But he was seeking a full return to him, uh, a full revival of his people's heart. And so God's attitude, we have to understand, is also not one of retaliation here. It's not as if he was going to withhold uh, his blessing on the people if they returned, right? You know, all of these things are coming, and so they say, we're sorry, God, we're going to come back. You know, please forgive us of our sin. And he's not sitting back there with his arms crossed saying, oh, okay, now I got your attention, right? Now that everything bad is going to happen to you, you want to you wanna come worship me. Okay, well, that's not how this works. That's not, that's not the attitude of God. This is not his reasoning for doing this. We have to understand that Jesus was not this way at all, and he is the expressed image of the Father. Right? Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. So that's not at the heart of God. That's not who he is. It's not retaliation. So although the message of Amos is, in fact, very harsh, it only co- it confirms what we've also learned about God from these other minor prophets. Number one, that God is long-suffering or slow to anger, and he's also quick to relent, right? So we see all these, these kind of gaining or growing hardships upon the nation of Israel. These were all attempts to bring them back to his heart before uh, the professed judgment was going to come at the hands of the Assyrians. He's seeking to draw them back before that great tragedy strikes. But we see that God is very long-suffering with his people, Prophet after prophet, he sends warning after warning. It's not like he immediately says, okay, you're sinning, you're done. You know, he sends prophet, he sends warning, he sends word out to try to draw them back to him. But we also see God is quick to relent. We saw that with the Ninevites, right? This was a pagan people. They weren't even believers of the Lord. And the Lord sent a prophet out to them and said, you know, essentially they have to believe or they're going to be decimated. And they turned immediately to the Lord and he withdrew his judgment. He's very quick to relent. It is not God's desire that we should suffer, but he did, his desire is for us to rend our hearts fully to him. And so as we, as we close this morning, I have one final question for us to consider that comes from verse 12. Are you prepared to meet your God? I, I just want you guys to really ponder that this morning and this week. Are you prepared to meet him? And I'm not sure if there's anything more important in this world and in our lives to be prepared for than to meet God. There's wonderful news in this is that Jesus has prepared a way for us to meet God, right? Jesus has prepared the way that we can also be prepared ourselves. He died in our place. It's simple, really. You believe in the gospel and you'll be prepared to meet God. Right? Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I, that where I am, you may be also. So he's prepared a place. Are you prepared to go there? The only way to be prepared is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's really how you prepare yourself to meet God. Again, are you prepared? God, God wants your heart this morning, guys. If you haven't already rendered it over to God, He wants your heart. 
We were created to be in fellowship with the Lord. And his heart breaks when we wander, guys. When we lose sight of him in the midst of the world. And if you have wandered today, there's wonderful news that through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, you are never too far gone. And I love that truth, guys. You're never too far gone. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the places you've been, the people you've hurt, the things that you've done in this world, you're never too far gone from the grasp of the Lord. There's always hope. And there's eternal hope for those who place their faith in Jesus. So guys, I just want to again encourage you. Last week we, uh, we talked about just the dangers of forgetting the Lord, right? The dangers of forgetting the Lord. And we see uh, through these four chapters uh, the dangers of forgetting the Lord of the people in the nation of Israel, right? And it, was, it wasn't like an immediate, immediate fall, right? It was a generational thing that they eventually were farther and farther uh, pulling away from the Lord. It began with, with just forgetting His Word, forgetting His statutes, not sharing His Word. Uh, his Scripture commanded them to, to meditate on His law day and night, to, to pass around His Word at the dinner table, to, to share of his mighty works and his deeds and none of these things were done in the nation of Israel and so they had this falling away from God they began to, uh, instead of being a light to the surrounding nations, the nations of darkness around them kind of pulled them into that same darkness and they began to live and dwell among those people and among their gods and uh, they, were, they were pulled away from the Lord and they began to live in depravity in opposition of what the Lord had commanded. And uh, it was, it's very hard to, to read this and see, you know, it's, you know hindsight's twenty twenty. We can see what's coming, right? We can see what's happening. And you're like, just turn back, you know? As I see the nation of Israel, I oftentimes just think, you know, are you, are you kidding me? Like, how, how can you possibly forget the wonderful things he has done for you? But, you know, we can forget it in our own lives too, can't we? You know, we can forget the wonderful things he's done in our lives. And uh, I'm far too similar to the Israelites than I care to admit at times in my own life. And, um, but the, the minor prophets are such a wonderful reminder for us and a really, really a great heart check for each individual here of where we're at with the Lord. You know, and, and the, the major question this morning is, are you prepared to meet him? You know, and we're not promised tomorrow. You know, in fact, many of us will, will have tomorrow most likely, but I can't promise it. You know, and so we, we don't know you know, when our timer's up, guys, and, you know, so we can say, you know, I'm not prepared to meet him, I'm just not there yet, you know, and, um, but God wants your heart, and we don't know, we don't know when our time is up, and I'm not trying to, to scare you into salvation, but if you're feeling a pull from the Holy Spirit this morning, I just encourage you, um, to listen. Um, if you're, if you're unsure of where you stand, and you're like, I don't know if I'm prepared to meet the Lord, um, I would love to talk to you after service, I'd love to pray with you, um, and, uh, and just help you if I can, you know, in, in any way possible. Um, but don't, you know, I just encourage you not to turn away from the Lord. When you hear his voice, when you hear his word, you hear him calling, pulling you back, you know, turn back to him. You know, it can be so easy and so comfortable to, to live a life uh, where we begin to dwell in, in sin and we kind of, it's like a slow fade, as it were, into a lifestyle like that where we completely forget the Lord over time and, um, you know, he doesn't want that, and I don't want that, and I don't think you want that either if you knew uh, the promises of the Lord and what they held in store for you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these minor prophets, Father, and I know there's some difficulty sometimes of, of bridging the cultural gaps here, Lord, but I thank you uh, that they are in your word for us to, to, to grapple with and to just see your attributes, your character traits revealed to us, Lord God. 
And I just pray that we are a people who um, mourn our sin rather than love it, God. That we are a people who uh, take heed of your warnings, Father. And just that we understand your true desire and heart for us. That we see the cross and understand that your love knows no bounds. And that your grace and your mercy are something that we cannot comprehend fully, Lord. We just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you, Lord. And it's time to study your word. I just pray for every family here, every person here, that you would just be with them, Father. That you would just grant them uh, the strength they need for this week. Uh, if they are worn down, if, they're, if they just feel the attacks of the enemy just bearing down upon them, I just ask, Lord, that you would just, um, that they would just lay their burdens at your feet, Lord. That they, they would take your yoke upon them. And God, I just ask that you, uh, you would just, just be with us. We just thank you for the opportunity that we can even worship you, Lord, that we can be in your presence because of the atoning work of Jesus. We thank you for this time together. And I just pray for a wonderful week and an opportunity to shine a light on the surrounding uh, community, Lord God, and just be salt and light uh, to the people in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.